G'day everybody, welcome back to the Birders Guide. How are we all today? Hope you've all had a fantastic fortnight, been able to get out and enjoy some good weather. Well, hopefully it's been good weather where you are. Not really much to report on my life. Um, one of Well, I try and get out once a week and do like a solid four or five hours of birding. But unfortunately, one of the downsides of doing week-long birding tours is that the work that you would have achieved um, in the week you're away doesn't simply go away. So this fortnight has been trying to fit three weeks worth of work into two, which means essentially that I haven't had any time to go birding. Nonetheless, maybe next week. So that's about all from me uh, in terms of what's been happening around Australia worth noting. Um, well, first of all, I don't um, generally pick up anything that's um, around in the states just because, um, just because I probably don't know enough about what's rare and what's not that's been reported in certain areas. Uh, for example, Major Mitchell cockatoos in Sydney. I think I read that somewhere, somewhere in Sydney. Now I would think that that was quite rare, but apparently there's a there's a little population there somewhere. So I I personally don't know enough about what is a rarity in certain areas. So I'd just stick with what would be worth twitching around Australia. In terms of that, there was a discussion going on about a flycatcher, probably a brown streaked flycatcher up near Broome, halfway between Broome and um, Port Hedland. If you're up that way. Uh, there's been a bit of discussion going on about a bird seen also up near Broome, uh, which could be a Chinese sparrowhawk. There's been confirmation, in inverted commas, um, from some international raptor experts, but I, I don't know whether that's been confirmed, confirmed. But if you're keen to go and see a Chinese sparrowhawk and possibly a brown goshawk, uh, you're probably too late anyway. Seen in August. So we'll see if anything comes out of that. Uh, also on Cocos Islands, there's been a stone chat, but n not enough evidence to say which one. But if you happen to be on Home Island at the Cocos, there's been rumours that it's still hanging around. So if you see something that looks like a stone chat, get some really fantastic photos. That would be brilliant. I reckon that might be about it. The usual South Island Pied Oyster catches are still hanging around. I reckon that's about it. So without any further ado, let's get into today's conversation. You're listening to The Birder's Guide with Michael Greenshirts. So on the show today we have got Anne Allsbrook, who is a PhD researcher or um, who was doing her PhD. You know, I always find it interesting what people do research on. Uh, there's always fascinating things, some of which are obvious and some of which are less obvious to the lay people of us out there. Anne did her research. Actually, no, I won't. I won't tell you what she did her research on. We'll talk about it in the conversation. So anyway. There's not really much else to say about that. We'll get into it, and she can tell you all about it. So, Anne, welcome to The Birder's Guide. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you're, I think, I just uh, 
assume here. I think you're based in Melbourne. How is that going? Uh, they've just started to release you guys from lockdown. How's that going for you? Yeah, that's good. It's nice being able to see people a bit more again and actually get outside and actually see some birds again too, actually, because, um, yeah, I've been restricted to the ones just around my home for a little while, so being able to travel a little further has been nice. Mm-hmm. Are you in Melbourne itself? Like, are you in the the focal yeah. part? Or, yep. Yeah, I'm in Carlton, so I'm I'm right in the inner inner suburbs. In a well, not in suburbs, I'm pretty much in the CBD. So yeah, um, yeah it's nice. been interesting seeing um, the change in the streets as well too, as things have slowly eased up over time. Mm. So, have you been based in Melbourne your whole life? I have, yeah. I've never lived anywhere else. That's, Very boring. That's, that's, that's fairly unusual, really. Um, yeah, for researchers. Yeah. Yeah, in particular. Yeah, I'm actually moving to Germany next year, so oh, oh yeah. that'll be a big, big thing for me. Oh yeah, I heard. I read somewhere that you got a scholarship somewhere in Germany. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I got a, a fellowship um, to do some research at the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology. So I'm super excited for that. Yeah, nice. That's cool. Yeah. So what was your childhood like then, just very briefly, in <laughs> living in the... Well, I assume you live in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. Yeah, I lived, I lived in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne growing up, but um, we spent a lot of time on weekends down the beach. Um, my parents have a holiday home in Venus Bay, so we travelled down there quite a lot. And that's probably partly where I got interested in wildlife, I think just spending time down the beach and um, out of town and seeing birds and echidnas and koalas and all those iconic Australian animals around there. Yeah. So, yeah. And have you always been into birding or did you, a lot of the people that I talked to sort of started off with reptiles or mammals and then progressed to birds? What was your progression? It's interesting. I, I never really planned to start be into birds or to study birds even. I feel like I kind of fell into it a bit. Like I, I was interested in animals and I was interested in science. And when I was finishing up my un- undergrad degree and looking at research projects for my honours, it just happened that there was a project on purple crown fairy wrens that interested me in terms of like the questions and the methods and I thought it would be really cool. So I did that and then after that, I was looking for PhD projects and again there was a project with birds that I was talking to some supervisors about that sounded really cool which was on black swans and so I think when you've been studying birds for five years then you become a bird person that Mm. becomes part of your identity so yeah yeah, I, I never really had a specific interest in birds but I think they're they're great as animals to observe like if, if you're really into mammals, it's hard to just go out and watch mammals, at least yeah. in Australia. A lot of them are nocturnal and, you know, anything else often tends to start getting a bit small or hard to find. So I think that's why a lot of people are probably drawn to birds as well. It's just they're around and you get to see them. So, um, And then I've gotten to I, – I, I don't know if I'd even really call myself a birder just because I know people who are real birders. <laughs> um, but – um, like I, my, my parents are really into birding, actually, and um, some of my friends I've met through 
uh, my PhD as well. So, um, like, I, I like to tag along and I like to look at birds and, you know, be like, oh, cool, I've never seen that one before. But I'm, I'm very bad at keeping lists and being oh, yeah. that diligent about it. So, yeah. yeah. Who's your um? Who's your PhD supervisor, or who was? Uh, so I had three supervisors. Um, so Raul Mulder at the University of Melbourne, Tracy Jones, who's also at the University of Melbourne, and John Lesku, who's at La Trobe. So, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I, they were a great combination of supervisors too, because I felt like they they brought together the three things of my PhD, which was light, birds, and sleep, and yeah. Um, yeah. So before we jump into your PhD, I'm interested to know what your, uh, you said your honours was on purple crowned ferrians, which are not found anywhere near Melbourne. Um, No. How did, well, how did you get into that and what did you, what did you study and what did you find? Yeah, so that project was with um, Dr. Anna Peters, who's at Monash Uni. So I did my undergrad at Monash Mm -hmm. and the... The purple crowns are obviously not in Victoria. They're over in um, Western Australia and the Northern Territory as well. So um, so basically my field work was over there, which is part of what attracted me to the project as well. It's like the idea of doing, you know, four to six weeks of field work in the Kimberley just sounded amazing. So, yeah, so the question, that project was all about quite different to the kind of stuff I'm doing now in some ways. We were interested in how... The immune function or the traits of immunity that those birds have might vary with their age and between males and females. So, yeah, so it was a lot of catching birds and taking tiny little blood samples and then analysing them back in the lab once I got back to Melbourne Mm. to see. Yeah, so we had some interesting predictions around that because these birds, unlike a lot of other fairy wrens, they're mostly monogamous. So they, they stay with the one one partner and so you might expect their investment in immunity to differ a bit from the ones that are maybe lots of lots of different fairy wrens. And um, yeah, and it was also interesting to see how those traits changed over over age. But, you know, obviously, honours is a one-year project, so there's only so much you can do. But it was, um, I wasn't able to track these fairy wrens across their entire lives or anything. But yeah, um, yeah, just get a snapshot. So, did you did you come up with any sort of conclusions? Were your predictions accurate? Yeah, I'm just or... trying to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what we found, what did we find because I, I think. What I found actually from my honours was that there seemed to be a big seasonal effect, mm-hmm. um, which we weren't really able to explain and we didn't really have enough seasons to really look into that properly. So it was it was at the end of my project, there were some conclusions, but it felt like we probably needed more data yeah. to be able to say anything conclusively. And so um, what ended up happening is um, I stayed on for another year um, as a research assistant, just collecting, well, I wasn't really out in the field that year, but I was going through the lab samples when I came back and analyzing those. And then um, a PhD student actually continued a bit from where I left off and got into things in much more depth. So that's um, Michael Rose who was working on the project after I was. Oh, yeah, nice. So, you, yeah. Oh, maybe I'll get in touch with him. We'll find out what he what he found <laughs> out. 
Um, yeah, oh no, I, I definitely should know. Like, I, it's been published <laughs> and I, I can pull it up, but just off the top of my head, I just remember it was uh, complicated and had a lot to do with the environment. There was yeah. a lot of environmental influence. Um, no, and that... I think it was harder to pull apart the bits that I was originally looking at. Yeah. No, that's fine. Yeah. That's not that's not even what we're here to talk about. So that's all good. <laughs> um, so did you go straight from your honours into doing a PhD then? I had one year off. Okay. Um, and I, I think I made more money in that year than I have in any year since. Where <laughs> 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 I, yeah, I was with that year I worked as a research assistant at Monash Uni and I was also working as a library assistant, um, which was fun but I also found it like I didn't really want to do that forever let's do that yep. more as a, a thing that was fun to do for a little while so uh, I found I missed being at uni and learning things yeah yeah um, so yeah looked, looked to do a PhD after that mm. so how long did it take you well how long did it take you to decide what you were going to do your PhD on where did that idea come from and what was your PhD on yeah, it took, I, because I, I like science and I like research and I, I like animals, but I have, I've never been someone who's been drawn to one specific question. I haven't felt like, yes, this is what I want to study. So I felt very nervous emailing people when I wanted to do a PhD because I felt like I wasn't bringing a whole lot to the table. I was like, I like stuff. And I like the stuff that you're doing and it sounds cool, but I, I'm i not sure exactly what I want to do. And so so I can, emailed, I, yeah. can I jump yep. in and ask a question there that people might be interested in? Because I am. Um, yeah. How does how does that process work? Do you, do you email someone and say, this is the project I want to do? Or do you say, I would like to work under you? Have you got projects going? Or how, how do you actually get a PhD project? Yeah, so I emailed, I basically looked online for people because I, I wanted to stay in Melbourne. I wasn't, you know, my family and everyone I cared about was here. So I didn't really want to move out just yet. So I was basically emailing researchers in Melbourne who were working on the kind of topics that I was interested in, which were things related to animal behaviour and animal ecology yep. and a little bit of evolution as well. So. I was emailing those people and I was saying this is broadly what I'm interested in. This is the research that you're doing that I'm really interested in. Yeah, have you got room for me in your lab? Um, and and it was it was good because I, I got to talk to you know quite a few different people and obviously I didn't end up working with all of them, um, but I've seen them since and heard more about what research they're doing and met their PhD students, which has been nice. Um, but I ended up, so the project I ended up settling on was something basically where I emailed, I'd actually emailed the two different supervisors separately saying, I like your research, what have you, have you got anything for me? Um, and one of them emailed me back saying, oh, I'll, I've been talking with, this was Raul, he said, I've been talking with Teresa and with John about this potential project looking at how light pollution, artificial light at night, affects sleep in black swans. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I've never really thought about sleep 
in mm. animals that mm. much before. Like I find sleep to be an interesting topic, but never really thought specifically about studying it. And I was really interested in urbanisation and conservation and how humans are affecting wildlife, including birds. And I just spent my honours looking at a really tiny bird that I had trouble finding and having trouble seeing. I was like, black swans are nice and big. I like <laughs> the sound of that. They're yeah. nice and big and easy to see and... Um, Accessible. They sound like they'd be a lot of fun to catch. So, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so, um, yeah, so I've, I've met with them and talked with them and it kind of unfolded from there. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. As I honestly had never thought of that question until I was looking at what your PhD was on. Um, yeah. So, so I guess the question is, why is that an important thing to know? Why is it important to know whether artificial light affects the sleep of a swan? Yeah, I guess there's a few reasons why. One is that we're living at a time where our use of artificial light is continuing to increase. It's a really pervasive problem that not many people are necessarily thinking about. And awareness about this has been growing, particularly over the last 10 to 20 years, but it's still a form of pollution we don't really think about maybe as much as we should. So, you know, in a lot of places now, there is no nighttime. There is no true darkness. We, we've completely changed an environment that's been so predictable for all of the history of evolution. We've always had a night and day, and now suddenly in many places we don't. So you would expect that to have an impact on wildlife and growing research is showing that, yes, it is having an effect. And we also know that sleep is important. Um, we don't know maybe as much about sleep in wildlife. It's kind of an emerging field as well. I mean, we know a bit, but I think we have still so much to learn. And But what, what we do know is that animals seem to need sleep. As far as we know, all animals need sleep to some extent. Some sleep more than others, but they seem to need it. It seems to perform some kind of essential function. Um, ideas on what that core function is vary, but it affects health and affects your performance. We've all experienced what happens to us when we don't get enough sleep, and it seems like animals are, other animals are the same. And we also know from our own experiences that light can affect sleep. And studies have shown this in humans as well, that light at night can keep us awake. So here we have a growing problem we have something it could affect, and we know that something is very important. So I guess when you put those things together, it becomes an interesting question of, of what, what effect is this happening? What, what effect is this having? And what I think the more important question to me is what can we actually do about it? So what sort of methods did you use to actually get results? What I guess what uh, physiological thing were you trying to find out from these swans? So we had a few different things. The The key thing that I wanted from the swans and I didn't really get much of was brain activity data. That's the best way to measure sleep. It's the most objective way and we know from other studies that birds can be doing all sorts of things when they're sleeping, like 
great trigger birds can sleep while they're flying. Ostriches can be sitting upright with their eyes open while they're sleeping. So we can't necessarily use behaviour as a good indicator of sleep. So, um, so I wanted brain activity data and I didn't get much of it because it turns out putting data loggers on birds that live in the water is quite challenging and we probably should have foreseen this. Um, but it was one of those things where we thought we'd be able to figure it out and it just became more and more clear as the months went on during that project that we were not going to figure it out. I've burnt through so many data loggers um, that were very expensive. And, and it, yeah. is that simply just because they spend a lot of time with their head underwater and it's electrical? Is yeah, that the, yeah, that's that's yeah. very much it. It was mostly water damage, and yeah, like uh, I think I think the other thing too is the, the ability to record brain activity in birds that are moving around, and I guess these were birds in an outdoor enclosure, so they were captive to some extent, but you know they were able to roam around and swim and all that kind of thing. The ability to record brain activity in that kind of environment is pretty cutting edge still. I mean, the technology has been around for 10 to 20 years, but it hasn't been adopted much and it's still still, still pretty new really in the scheme of things. And I think the reality is when you're using cutting edge technology, things are more likely to go wrong. Um, so, we, yeah. But, yeah, water was the main problem that we had of, of just we couldn't figure out how to waterproof these things to the extent they apparently needed and it was quite a <laughs> quite a hard thing of spending ages you know setting up these data loggers and then catching the swans and then putting the data logger on the swan's head and then you know doing all this stuff to try and make sure it's secure and hopefully waterproof and then letting that swan go and watching it immediately dunk its head under the water and being <laughs> like I bet that thing just stopped recording just now. So if you didn't get any, or if you didn't get much brain activity information, what what other sort of things did you get information from? So the other thing that I recorded was accelerometry. So that's just, it's you have a, a small data logger that's basically just recording movements in three dimensions. And so we attached those to the swan's necks. And so it's just recording their activity patterns. And the neat thing with that was that because we didn't get much brain activity data, but we got a little bit. And by looking at the brain activity data for those two swans that we actually got it for, and then comparing that to their accelerometry data, we found, and when I tell people this, it sounds like the most boring result ever but for me it was the most <laughs> exciting thing of my phd i think we found that when birds were active they were awake and when they were resting they were almost always asleep and that sounds oh, yeah. so intuitive and so basic but the thing is we didn't know this and this was the first ever time we'd recorded sleep in black swans the first time anyone had and so this was pretty important to establish that we could use accelerometry as a reasonable proxy for sleep, particularly given that we know that behaviour isn't always a good proxy for sleep in animals. So, so it meant that, um, and it turned out those um, accelerometry data loggers uh, were a bit more robust to water than the um, brain activity ones, or at least they, it, it was just easier to waterproof them and to put them on swans in a way that 
they would stay dry. So those were super durable. And so I was able to record months of activity data from all the swans we had in the enclosure. So I was able to actually make some conclusions about how light affects sleep in the swans based on that activity data. Yeah. And what was your, well, what was your conclusion? Well, so what we found was that the swans tended to sleep less at night when the lights were on, which again, you know, no massive surprises there, but still it's the first time it had been shown. They slept a bit less when the lights were on at night. The interesting thing to me, and this requires maybe a bit more background information, but we also compared the these two different colours of light. So on our phones we have these apps now that makes the screen look more amber or orange in the evening and that's supposed to help us sleep better because it's those blue wavelengths of light that have a particularly strong effect on the hormone melatonin which is important for regulating sleep. So you reduce that blue light and you improve your sleep. And so we were wondering whether this might help birds as well. So if you reduce the blue wavelengths of light, are they going to sleep better? So I compared white light with orange light, which was very similar to the white light, but just had those blue wavelengths cut out and didn't find a difference, which was interesting. So there's studies in other systems that have found that, um, not so much on sleep in wildlife, but that have found that orange light can be beneficial. And so basically it just seems like, okay, sometimes it is, but for the black swans, maybe it's not. Is there a chance that maybe it was, they just didn't have time to get used to it to change their sleeping routines or was that not really a factor? I don't think so. We we did record, um, we gave them 20 nights of each light exposure. So they had a bit oh, yeah. of time um, and we didn't really see any trends over time over those 20 nights either. It wasn't like they were, you know, struggling really bad at the start and then their sleep got better over time or the reverse, Mm. you know, it wasn't like they were sleeping the worst at the, um, so sleeping better at the start and then chronically getting worse over time. There just didn't really seem to be any trends there. So I'm reasonably confident that what we saw wasn't dependent on the duration of the light exposure. But it is worth keeping in mind that we these were urban swans we caught them Mm. around melbourne so it's also possible these are swans that are pretty well adapted to light they've already experienced it before in their lives and maybe they habituated to it and also maybe like you know the fact that we find them in urban areas means that they're reasonably robust to light at night we didn't find big effects on their sleep when i say they slept less at night it was a difference of 45 minutes under amber light and 25 minutes under white light. So it wasn't a a massive, massive difference in sleep. But still, like, for me, I think if I lose 45 minutes of sleep, I'm not too pleased about it. So it's interesting interesting to know whether that's true for the swans. And I think that's the one thing that we weren't able to find out, really, is whether this had any implications for them. Did you compare anything to birds that lived i guess with no light pollution or is that too far out of your scope i originally wanted to that was something we talked about really early in my phd is 
getting swans from rural locations as well. But uh, it turns out they're really hard to catch because we want to catch So for those who have never caught a swan before, the way you Just catch probably, a swan... probably most people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way you catch a swan is you throw down food, usually a little bit of bread or some lettuce, and wait for them to get close enough, and then you grab them. Um, this is much harder to do with swans that aren't used to being fed by people. So even though people aren't mm. meant to feed the wild birds, they're, they're very used to associating people with food. So yep. you go down to an urban park and throw down some bread and you'll have the swans come right up to you. But you try that at um, yeah, at a less urban location and the swans are like, what the hell is this? And fly away. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have... Or do you know of any other studies or do you have perhaps um, not any evidence but just a personal opinion on whether your research is applicable to other birds as well, other species? So we did do some other research. Um, so I did some research during my PhD on pigeons and another PhD student um, I worked with also did the same experiment that I did with the pigeons with Australian magpies. And that was an interesting study because we found that basically the results for magpies, sorry, results for pigeons were similar to the swans and that there was no difference between white and amber light. Both had pretty massive effects on sleep in pigeons. And by massive, I mean they lost like four hours of sleep during the night mm. out of their usual 10. But these were birds in a captive environment where they couldn't avoid the light. So... I'm not surprised yeah. that they were more affected than the swans were, but still no difference between the white and amber light. But for the magpies, amber light was better for sleep than white light. Amber light was still, still disrupted sleep, but it wasn't as bad. So that was kind of interesting. So that, and you know, it was a very similar experimental design for those two studies done in the same, you know, same study environment by some of the same people overlapping between the projects. So I think the take-home message there is that probably these effects are a bit species-specific. We can't generalise from one bird across all birds, which is an important lesson, I think, because whenever you uh, <laughs> trying to justify doing these studies as well too, it's like, well, why are you studying black swans? Why don't you just study something easy like a pigeon? everything just use pigeons for everything and then we'll you know you can do some really detailed experiments in the lab and find out all sorts of things and then we know what's going on but and i don't think that's true i think we yeah different birds will respond differently we don't entirely understand why but i think that's important to keep in mind still though i think i think the thing we can take away from it is that it's probably safer to assume that light is going to have an effect rather than saying, oh, there's no evidence that it does. So, which is something you come across a lot with um, developmental, uh, yeah, proposals to do stuff, like add lights yeah, into yeah. an urban park. They'll say things like, there's no evidence that light has an effect on this species. Mm. So, no, what you're saying is there's no research and that is definitely yeah. not the same thing. Did you find any unexpected outcomes of your research? I was so prepared to find that amber light is always better. 
And that was what I was wanting to find because that would be a really nice outcome for management. It's just, yeah, yep. change all the lights to amber. It's better for humans. It's better for birds. It's better for everyone. We never found that it was worse, but it definitely wasn't always better. So that was unexpected for me. I didn't find any effects on daytime behavior as well. So even though the swans were sleeping a bit less during the night, there wasn't any change on how they behaved during the day. But I don't know if I was testing the right things there to really see no. much. Has the information you gathered from your PhD, is that being used to do anything or is it being used by the city of Melbourne or by other researchers to do further? Not in a very specific way. Like it's not like I've been able to, you know, dramatically slam it down on someone's desk as like, here, this is what you should be doing. But it is helping build a case, I think. So there's there's a lot of ongoing research that's continuing to find yeah. that light at night is having these effects. And so it has been good being able to talk with people. And um, like not long ago, I gave a talk to lighting designers at RMIT, which is really cool. And they, they were working on, you know, thinking about creative solutions um, about light and also had the opportunity to comment on some environmental proposals and where they're planning to introduce light into environments and being able to assess that evidence is important, I think. It's a very vague answer, but I think that's the reality of research sometimes is that you need a lot of research before you can start making a difference. And I think we're starting to get there and I think we're starting to have enough to be able yeah. to tell people what they should be doing, but there's still so many questions that we need to answer. Like, um, you know, how much light is bad? How, how, how much do you need to reduce it for it to have no effect at all? We don't really know the answer to mm. that for most species, if very few. And whether it's just generally better to switch to amber, it seems like we're leaning that way. But then again, people don't necessarily want to. Yeah. And unfortunately, at the end of the day, if you don't have a lot of research, generally speaking, human needs are going to outweigh animal needs. Just Absolutely, yeah. With developers and government and, you know, that's just the way it is, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, and even when you do have the research too, it's, it can be hard to weigh those things up or to make a compelling case when you're asking people to do something that they're less comfortable with. The reality is with light at night is that the, the first thing that people think of when they want to make a place safer is adding more light. And it's kind of funny because I think that's more <laughs> a cultural and innate thing we have where we're afraid of the dark. Mm. And there isn't actually a whole heap of evidence to say that it makes us any safer. But that's yep. what we go to first. Yeah. Well, that was my first thought. I was like, oh, I wonder if you could just, just <laughs> take the lights out of the park. And I was like, no, that would be very unsafe. <laughs> so there yep. you go. There you go. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, we might, um, we might wrap it up there. But I do have one more question, which I ask everybody who comes on the podcast. But it's, mu it's a bit less um, relevant to you. But I'll ask anyway. I ask everybody if they have a... a a favourite birding spot 
that everybody should go to at least once in their life um, mm-hmm. that you've been. But as someone who's not a <laughs> self-professed birder, um, maybe you do. Maybe you do have somewhere that was just fantastic. I think a lot of the most amazing birds I have seen in my life were during that field work in the Kimberley. It's just such a beautiful location and the birds are so pretty and there's, there's just so much life there. But I, I also want to name a place closer to home because I think there are some... I, I, I do love the dandenongs oh, yeah. Um, yeah. up around the lyrebird tracks. Seeing superb um, lyrebirds in the wild is, is pretty special. Yeah, cool. Oh, we'll go with the Dandenongs and the Kimberley. Were you at yeah. the? Where were you based in the Kimberley? Was that like along Victoria River there, or? Um, so I was it? at the um, Mornington Field Station. Oh yeah. All right. Well, we might uh, wrap it up there. So thanks for giving us half an hour of your time, and all the best with your research next year in Germany. If uh, hopefully governments will let you get there. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I and officially we'll... got my travel exemption two days ago. So that's yeah, nice. Exciting. Yeah. Nice. What do you, What are you actually? Now that I've said we're finished, what are you actually studying next year? The plan is, and again, this is this is, yeah, it's a it's an interesting time to be trying to do research. But the plan, if all goes to plan, will be that I'll be studying shorebirds in Alaska. So looking nice. at the courtship behaviours of pectoral sandpipers mostly, and. Yeah, it's an interesting system because we've got constant light during the summer and they're competing for females and males that sleep the least are the most successful. So mm-hmm. kind of interested to see what those males are getting up to, to to be so successful. Well, it will certainly be different from uh, suburban Melbourne. Yes, yes, but, definitely. Uh, yeah, should be good. Oh, all the best with it and... Uh, Maybe we'll chat in, you know, another three years' time and see how what you found. Sounds good. Thanks so much. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Hope you found that interesting. And if you come back and listen in a fortnight's time, um, I've got two or three people on the go currently trying to find times to interview them, so it will probably be whoever I can find time to interview. Uh, but they're all interesting. They've all got very quite interesting topics to talk about. So enjoy your fortnight get some birding in hopefully i'll join you and get some in as well and until next time happy birding